Section 13 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. Section 13. Edward Dowden. Born 1843. Biography. We are all hunters, skillful or skillless, in literature. Hunters for our spiritual good or for our pleasure, says Edward Dowden. And to his earnest research and careful exposition, many readers owe a more thorough appreciation of literature. He was educated at Queen's College, Cork, his birthplace, and then at Trinity College, Dublin, where he received the Vice Chancellor's Prize in both English verse and English prose, and also the first English moderatorship. In logic and ethics. For two years he studied divinity. Then he obtained, by examination, a professorship of oratory at the University of Dublin, where he was afterwards elected professor of English literature. The scholarship of his literary work has won him many honors. In 1888, he was chosen president of the English. Goethe Society to succeed Professor Muller. The following year, he was appointed first Taylorian lecturer in the Taylor Institute, Oxford. The Royal Irish Academy has bestowed the Cunningham Gold Medal upon him, and he has also received the honorary degree LLD of the University of Edinburgh and from Princeton University. Very early in life, Professor Dowden began to express his feeling for literature and the instinct which leads him to account for a work by study of its author's personality. For more than twenty years, English readers have known him as a frequent contributor of critical essays to the leading reviews. These have been collected into the delightful volumes Studies in Literature and Transcripts and Studies. His has been called an honest method, wholesome as sweet. He would offer more than a mere resume of what his author expresses. He would be one of the interpreters and transmitters of new forms of thought to the masses of readers who lack time or ability to discover values for themselves. Very widely read himself. He is fitted for just comparisons and comprehensive views. As has been pointed out, he is fond of working from a general consideration of a period, with its formative influences, to the particular care of the author with whom he is dealing. Saintsbury tells us that Mr. Dowden's procedure is to ask his author a series of questions, which seem to him of vital importance. And find out how he would answer them. Dowden's style is careful, clear, and thorough, showing his scholarship and incisive thought. 
His form of expression is strongly picturesque. It is nowhere more so than in Shakespeare, A Study of His Mind and Art. This, his most noteworthy work, has been very widely read and admired. His intimate acquaintance with German criticism upon the great Elizabethan especially fitted him to present fresh considerations to the public. He has also written A Brilliant Life of Shelley, bitterly criticized by Mark Twain in the North American Review, A Defense of Harriet Shelley, and A Life of Southey in the English Men of Letters series, and edited most capably Southey's correspondence with Caroline Bowles. The Correspondence of Sir Henry Taylor, Shakespeare's Sonnets, The Passionate Pilgrim, and a Collection of Lyrical Ballads. The Humor of Shakespeare From Shakespeare, A Critical Study of His Mind and Art A study of Shakespeare which fails to take account of Shakespeare's humor must remain essentially incomplete. The character and spiritual history of a man who is endowed with a capacity for humorous appreciation of the world must differ throughout and in every particular from that of the man whose moral nature has never rippled over with genial laughter. At whatever final issue Shakespeare arrived after long spiritual travail as to the attainment of his life, that precise issue, rather than another, was arrived at, in part, by virtue of the fact of Shakespeare's humor. In the composition of forces which determined the orbit traversed by the mind of the poet, this must be allowed for as a force among others, in importance not the least, and efficient at all times, even when little apparent. A man whose visage holds one stern intent from day to day, and whose joy becomes, at times, almost a supernatural rapture, may descend through circles of hell to the narrowest and the lowest. He may mount from sphere to sphere of paradise until he stands within the light of the divine majesty, but he will hardly succeed in presenting us with an adequate image of life as it is on this earth of ours, in its oceanic amplitude and variety. A few men of genius there have been, who, with vision penetrative as lightning, have gazed, as it were, through life, at some eternal significances of which life is the symbol. Intent upon its sacred meaning, they have had no eye to note the forms of the grotesque hieroglyph of human existence. Such men are not framed for laughter. To this little group, the creator of Falstaff, of Bottom, and of Touchstone, does not belong. Shakespeare, who saw life more widely and wisely than any other of the seers, could laugh. That is a comfortable fact to bear in mind, a fact which serves to rescue us from the domination of intense and narrow natures, who claim authority by virtue of their grasp of one half of the realities of our existence, and their denial of the rest. 
Shakespeare could laugh, but we must go on to ask: What did he laugh at, and what was the manner of his laughter? There are as many modes of laughter as there are facets of the common soul of humanity to reflect the humorous appearances of the world. Hogarth, in one of his pieces of coarse yet subtle engraving, has presented a group of occupants of the pit of a theatre sketched during the performance of some broad comedy or farce. What proceeds upon the stage is invisible. And undiscoverable, save as we catch its reflection on the faces of the spectators, in the same way that we infer a sunset from the evening flame upon windows that front the west. Each laughing face in Hogarth's print exhibits a different mode or a different stage of the risible paroxysm. There is the habitual enjoyer of the broad comic, abandoned to his mirth. Which is open and unashamed, mirth which he is evidently a match for and able to sustain. By his side is a companion female portrait, a woman with head thrown back to ease the violence of the guffaw. All her loose, redundant flesh is tickled into an orgasm of merriment. She is fairly overcome. On the other side. Sits the spectator who has passed the climax of his laughter. He wipes the tears from his eyes and is on the way to regain an insecure and temporary composure. Below appears a girl of eighteen or twenty, whose vacancy of intellect is captured and occupied by the innocuous folly still in progress. She gazes on expectantly. Assured that a new blossom of the wonder of absurdity is about to display itself, her father, a man who does not often surrender himself to an indecent convulsion, leans his face upon his hand, and with the other steadies himself by grasping one of the iron spikes that enclose the orchestra. In the right corner sits the humorist, whose eyes, around which the wrinkles gather. Are half closed, while he already goes over the jest a second time in his imagination. At the opposite side, an elderly woman is seen, past the period when animal violences are possible, laughing because she knows there is something to laugh at, though she is too dull-witted to know precisely what. One spectator, as we guess from his introverted air. Is laughing to think what somebody else would think of this. Finally, the thin-lipped, perk-nosed person of refinement looks aside, and by his critical indifference condemns the broad, injudicious mirth of the company. All these laughers of Hogarth are very commonplace, and some are very vulgar persons. One trivial, ludicrous spectacle. Is the occasion of their mirth, when from such laughter as this we turn to the laughter of men of genius who gaze at the total play of the world's life, and when we listen to this, as with the ages it goes on gathering and swelling, our sense of hearing is enveloped and almost annihilated by the chorus of mock and jest, of antic and buffoonery, of tender mirth.
and indignant satire, of monstrous burlesque and sly absurdity, of desperate misanthropic derision, and genial affectionate caressing of human imperfection and human folly. We hear from behind the mask the enormous laughter of Aristophanes, ascending peal above peal until it passes into jubilant ecstasy, or from the uproar springs some exquisite lyric strain. We hear laughter of passionate indignation from juvenile, the indignation of the ancient and free soul of the dead republics, and there is Rabelais with his huge buffoonery and the earnest eyes intent on freedom, which look out at us in the midst of the zany's tumblings and indecencies, and Cervantes, with his refined Castilian air and deep melancholy mirth, at odds with the enthusiasm which is dearest to his soul, and Moliere, with his laughter of unerring good sense, undiluted by fashion, or vanity, or folly, or hypocrisy, and brightly mocking these into modesty. And Milton, with his fierce, objurgatory laughter, Elijah-like insult against the enemies of freedom, and of England. And Voltaire, with his quick intellectual scorn, and eager malice of the brain. And there is the urbane and amiable play of Addison's invention, not capable of large achievement, but stirring the corners of the mouth with a humane smile, gracious gaiety for the breakfast-tables of England, and Fielding's careless mastery of the whole broad common field of mirth, and Stern's exquisite curiosity of oddness, his subtle extravagances and humours prepense. And there is the tragic laughter of Swift, which announces the extinction of reason and loss beyond recovery of human faith and charity and hope. How in this chorus of laughters, joyous and terrible, is the laughter of Shakespeare distinguishable? In the first place, the humor of Shakespeare, like his total genius, is many-sided. He does not pledge himself as dramatist to any one view of human life. If we open a novel by Charles Dickens, we feel assured beforehand that we are condemned to an exuberance of philanthropy. We know how the writer will insist that we must all be good friends, all be men and brothers, intoxicated with the delight of one another's presence. We expect him to hold out the right hand of fellowship to man, woman, and child. We are prepared for the bacchanalia of benevolence. The lesson we have to learn from this teacher is that with the exception of a few inevitable and incredible monsters of cruelty, every man naturally engendered of the offspring of Adam is of his own nature inclined to every amiable virtue. Shakespeare abounds in kindly mirth. He receives an exquisite pleasure from the alert wit and bright good sense of a Rosaline. He can dandle a fool as tenderly as any nurse qualified to take a baby from the birth 
can deal with her charge. But Shakespeare is not pledged to deep-dyed ultra-amiability. With Jock, he can rail at the world while remaining curiously aloof from all deep concern about its interests, this way or that. With Timon, he can turn upon the world with a rage no less than that of Swift, and discover in man and woman a creature as abominable as the Yahoo. In other words, the humor of Shakespeare, like his total genius, is dramatic. Then again, although Shakespeare laughs incomparably, mere laughter wearies him. The only play of Shakespeare's, out of nearly forty, which is farcical, The Comedy of Errors, was written in the poet's earliest period of authorship, and was formed upon the suggestion of a preceding piece. It has been observed with truth by Gervinus that the farcical incidents of this play have been connected by Shakespeare with a tragic background, which is probably his own invention. With beauty, or with pathos, or with thought, Shakespeare can mingle his mirth, and then he is happy, and knows how to deal with play of wit or humorous characterization. But an entirely comic subject somewhat disconcerts the poet. On this ground, if no other were forthcoming, it might be suspected that the taming of the shrew was not altogether the work of Shakespeare's hand. The secondary intrigues and minor incidents were of little interest to the poet, but in the buoyant force of Petruchio's character, in his subduing tempest of high spirits, and in the person of the foiled revoltress against the law of sex, who carries into her wifely loyalty the same energy which she had shown in her virgin savagery, there were elements of human character in which the imagination of the poet took delight. Unless it be its own excess, however, Shakespeare's laughter seems to fear nothing. It does not, when it has once arrived at its full development, fear enthusiasm, or passion, or tragic intensity, nor do these fear it. The traditions of the English drama had favored the juxtaposition of the serious and comic, but it was reserved for Shakespeare to make each a part of the other, to interpenetrate tragedy with comedy, and comedy with tragic earnestness. Shakespeare's Portraiture of Women From Transcripts and Studies of all the daughters of his imagination, which did Shakespeare love the best? Perhaps we shall not err if we say one of the latest born of them all, our English Imogen. And what most clearly shows us how Shakespeare loved Imogen is this. He has given her faults and has made them exquisite, so that we love her better for their sake. No one has so quick and keen a sensibility to whatever pains and to whatever gladdens as she. To her, a word is a blow, and as she is quick in her sensibility, 
so she is quick in her perceptions, piercing at once through the queen's false show of friendship, quick in her contempt for what is unworthy, as for all professions of love from the clown prince Cloten, quick in her resentment, as when she discovers the unjust suspicions of Posthumus. Wronged she is indeed by her husband, but in her haste she too grows unjust. Yet she is dearer to us for the sake of this injustice, proceeding as it does from the sensitiveness of her love. It is she to whom a word is a blow who actually receives a buffet from her husband's hand. But for Imogen, it is a blessed stroke, since it is the evidence of his loyalty and zeal on her behalf. In a moment he is forgiven, and her arms are round his neck. Shakespeare made so many perfect women unhappy that he owed us some amend, and he has made that amend by letting us see one perfect woman supremely happy. Shall our last glance at Shakespeare's plays show us Florizel at the rustic merrymaking, receiving blossoms from the hands of Perdita, or Ferdinand and Miranda playing chess in Prospero's cave, and winning one a king and one a queen, while the happy fathers gaze in from the entrance of the cave? We can see a more delightful sight than these. Imogen, with her arms around the neck of Posthumus, while she puts an edge upon her joy by the playful challenge and mock reproach. Why did you throw your wedded lady from you? Think that you were upon a rock, and now throw me again. And he responds, Hang there like a fruit, my soul, till the tree die. We shall find in all Shakespeare no more blissful creatures than these two. The Interpretation of Literature From Transcripts and Studies The happiest moment in a critic's hours of study is when, seemingly by some divination, but really as the result of patient observation and thought, he lights upon the central motive of a great work. Then, of a sudden, order begins to form itself from the crowd and chaos of his impressions and ideas. There is a moving hither and thither, a grouping or coordinating of all his recent experiences, which goes on of its own accord, and every instant his vision becomes clearer and new meanings disclose themselves in what had been lifeless and unilluminated. It seems as if he could even stand by the artist's side and cooperate with him in the process of creating. With such a sense of joy upon him, the critic will think it no hard task to follow the artist to the sources from whence he drew his material. It may be some dull chapter in an ancient chronicle, or some gross tale of passion by an Italian novelist, and he will stand by and watch with exquisite pleasure the artist handling that crude material, and refashioning and refining it, and breathing into it the breath of a higher life. 
Even the minutest difference of text between an author's earlier and later draft, or a first and second edition, has now become a point not for dull commentatorship, but a point of life, at which he may touch with his finger the pulse of the Creator in his fervor of creation. From each single work of a great author, we advance to his total work and thence to the man himself, to the heart and brain, from which all this manifold world of wisdom and wit and passion and beauty has proceeded. Here again, before we address ourselves to the interpretation of the author's mind, we patiently submit ourselves to a vast series of impressions, and in accordance with Bacon's maxim that a prudent interrogation is the half of knowledge, it is right to provide ourselves with a number of well-considered questions, which we may address to our author. Let us cross-examine him as students of mental and moral science, and find replies in his written words. Are his senses vigorous and fine? Does he see color as well as form? Does he delight in all that appeals to the sense of hearing, the voices of nature, and the melody and harmonies of the art of man? Thus Wordsworth, exquisitely organized for enjoying and interpreting all natural, and, if we may say so, homeless and primitive sounds, had but little feeling for the delights of music. Can he enrich his poetry? by gifts from the sense of smell, as did Keats? Or is his nose, like Wordsworth's, an idle promontory projecting into a desert air? Has he, like Browning, a vigorous pleasure in all strenuous muscular movements? Or does he, like Shelley, live rapturously in the finest nervous thrills? How does he experience and interpret the feeling of sex? And in what parts of his entire nature does that feeling find its elevating connections and associations? What are his special intellectual powers? Is his intellect combative or contemplative? What are the laws which chiefly preside over the associations of his ideas? What are the emotions which he feels most strongly? And how do his emotions coalesce with one another? Wonder, terror, awe, love, grief, hope, despondency, the benevolent affections, admiration, the religious sentiment, the moral sentiment, the emotion of power, irascible emotion, ideal emotion. How do these make themselves felt in and through his writings? What is his feeling for the beautiful, the sublime, the ludicrous? Is he of weak or vigorous will? In the conflict of motives, which class of motives with him is likely to predominate? Is he framed to believe or framed to doubt? Is he prudent, just, temperate, or the reverse of these? These and such-like questions are not to be crudely and formally proposed, but are to be used with tact, nor should the critic 
press for hard and definite answers, but know how skillfully to glean its meaning from an evasion. He is a dull cross-examiner who will invariably follow the scheme which he has thought out and prepared beforehand, and who cannot vary his questions to surprise or beguile the truth from an unwilling witness. But the tact which comes from natural gift and from experience may be well supported by something of method, method well hidden away from the surface and from sight. This may be termed the psychological method of study, but we may also follow a more objective method, taking the chief themes with which literature and art are conversant, God, external nature, humanity. We may inquire how our author has dealt with each of these. What is his theology or his philosophy of the universe, by which we mean no abstract creed or doctrine, but the tides and currents of feeling and of faith, as well as the tendencies and conclusions of the intellect. Under what aspect has this goodly frame of things, in whose midst we are, revealed itself to him? How has he regarded and interpreted the life of man? Under each of these great themes, a multitude of subordinate topics are included, and alike in this and in what we have termed the psychological method of study, we shall gain double results if we examine a writer's works in the order of their chronology, and thus become acquainted with the growth and development of his powers, and the widening and deepening of his relations with man, with external nature, and with that supreme power unknown yet well known, of which nature and man are the manifestation. As to the study of an artist's technical qualities, this, by virtue of the fact that he is an artist, is of capital importance, and it may often be associated with the study of that which his technique is employed to express and render, the characteristics of his mind and of the vision which he has attained, of the external universe, of humanity, and of God. Of all our study, the last end and aim should be to ascertain how a great writer or artist has served the life of man. To ascertain this, to bring home to ourselves as large a portion as may be, of the gain wherewith he has enriched human life, and to render access to that store of wisdom, passion, and power easier and surer for others. End of section 13. Recording by Skyasimaru, Mililani, Hawaii, September 2021.